Hi, I'm Dr. Hillary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in other people's problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The poet David White wrote, There is no house like the house of belonging. But where do you find that house? And how do you know when you've arrived? Today, three stories about the yearning to belong to a place or to a person. In Vancouver, the Newcomer Bike Mentorship Program plays matchmaker. New arrivals in the city get to know their way around by cycling around town with the help of locals. I had seen this um, little tiny uh, woman. She looked like she was about my age. I'm in my mid-60s. And I saw her across the room, and I could see her gesturing to her husband and smiling when she looked at me. And I went, okay, that potentially could be a fit. They said, Joan, Masha. And I was so happy. <laughs> yes. Masha Permakov and Joanne Thember coming up. And later this hour, for much of his life, Arjun Sharma only vaguely understood what his grandfather was saying in Punjabi. But language wasn't the only barrier between them. They saw the world in profoundly different ways, even when it came to medical advice, despite the fact that Arjun was in med school. I think while my grandfather really believed and had a strong sense of faith and a belief that God would help him with his health issues, I had this really strong belief in medicine. Language as a way to belong to one another, coming up. Later this hour, what about the feeling of not belonging? You'll meet someone who says it does have its upside. And that feeling of marginalization, exclusion, gives you a perspective on life that allows you to hopefully then use it as a way to understand other people who might not share the same experiences as you, who might be different from you, but who also have a similar experience of being marginalized, of being outside. Girish Daswani, later this hour. The House of Belonging, come on in. This is Tapestry, I'm Mary Hines. When Masha Permakov moved to Vancouver, she wanted to get to know her new city by biking around town. But before she could enjoy the view of the ocean and the mountains from the bike trail, she would first have to learn to ride a bike at the age of 68. That's where Joanne Thember stepped in. Tapestry's Theo Van Buzikom brings you the story. The people who are surrounding me, they were telling me, you are crazy to go to bike, you are crazy. I'm Maria Permikov. I'm living in Vancouver almost three years. I came from Jerusalem. I was living in Jerusalem 30 years. This is Masha. She moved from Moldova to Russia to Israel before coming to Canada in 2020. The country was locked down, but that didn't stop her from joining several newcomer programs over Zoom, trying to improve her English. And when things started opening up, 
a very different type of program came across her radar. A year ago, I received this information for one of our instructions. I feel myself very curious because it was a thing that I never did in my life. Never, never. Even when I was a child, I was not biking. When I found out that Masha had never been on a bike in her 68 years, I went, oh boy. I know how I was taught how to ride a bike. My dad basically put me on a bike that I could now reach the pedals of and pushed me from the back and said, try to stay straight. And I thought that's probably not going to work for a person of my age who's never ridden a bike before. My name is Joanne Thember. Um, I've lived in Vancouver for 36 years now, and I love this place. bike volunteer program through HUB and the ISS, which is the Immigration Services Society of BC, is aimed at trying to connect new immigrants and refugees uh, with people who are familiar with the city, who love to bike ride, as an opportunity for new immigrants and refugees to integrate into the Vancouver society a little bit easier than they would with maybe not having a sort of an extra support or mentor. So I thought it was kind of interesting. I love Vancouver, I love bike riding. So I thought that might be a good fit for me. I like doing things one-on-one. -on -one. They, they set you up so there's basically sort of like an introductory meal. I walk into a room and see all these new people. We were sitting and we were, I suppose, 15 or 18 people. And in my mind, uh, I thought that it will be a mentor maybe to a group of people and the door opened and we saw 15 or 18 mentors that came in. We were in shock. I had seen this um, little tiny uh, woman. She looked like she was about my age. I'm in my mid-60s. And I saw her across the room and I could see her gesturing to her husband and smiling when she looked at me. And I went, okay, that potentially could be a fit. And I was looking and I saw Joanne and I said to my husband, I want this woman. Maybe because she was so cheerful, joyful. She was like she wanted to invite you to be together with her. The program organizers start to call out names and they start matching us. They said, Joanne, Masha, and I was so happy. <laughs> Joanne asked me, what is your goal? I said, if I will make a circle around the Stanley Park, I will be the happiest woman in the world. My reservations as teaching somebody how to ride from scratch was that it had been so long since I had been in that position, I was worried that she was going to have a bad fall. I was worried that um, we wouldn't be able to get past the first step. So I Googled it, God bless YouTube, and uh, found a lovely uh, video with a British lady who literally gave me some good tips on how you would teach a, an adult from scratch, and uh, that's what we did. First of all, find a good location one without traffic and a paved surface. Saturday was typically our day to meet. We would practice bike riding for at least an hour. I made sure we never went out on any trails, any streets, uh, probably the first month. Masha had to get a kid's bike uh, to ride because she was too tiny to get an adult bike. All of the mentees got free bikes, uh, bikes that had been donated. The very beginning, it was very, very difficult because it was very difficult to, um, to balance, yes. And uh, she was looking and she was saying, it will be okay, we will do it, you got it, yes. 
she always gave you a feeling that you will do it. I just felt the, the need to sort of be an advocate for her and to just sort of let her develop in whatever way she was going to or not going to um, in this situation and to let it flow as naturally as possible. She takes everything very seriously and you see it, you feel it, you know that you are like uh, near a stone, yes, that she will do everything. always went out for coffee afterwards. That was our little routine. So it was probably three hours that we were together, typically on a Saturday morning. We were laughing all the time. We were laughing. We were speaking about literature. We were speaking about uh, films. You know, we were speaking about what comes to my head. I have an opportunity to ask her. Yes. She always have uh, an answer for me. We are going for a cup of coffee. She's speaking very quickly. And I didn't understand, and I told her, I didn't understand, please speak in other words. And she began to laugh. How did you not understand me if we are sitting here three hours? You can understand because you are answering my questions. We are speaking. <laughs> she is very, very friendly. The wonderful thing about the time that we spent together is we never watched the clock. It wasn't sort of like, okay, I'm here to volunteer for one or two hours, or she's like, oh, I have Joanne to teach me how to ride a bike for one hour, and maybe we'll go for coffee, or maybe we'll go for a 10-minute walk. So for us, like I said, we never had a day where we were together less than three hours, ever. Masha's progress was quick. After just a few sessions with Joanne and some cycling with her husband on off days, she was off the parking lot and onto the bike paths. But the new terrain came with some bumps. I think it was the first week that we came off of the parking lot. And so now we're riding on the sidewalks and the bike paths in Stanley Park. And there is a little sidewalk and you have to come around the corner and they put those posts in the paths or whatever to separate them. And she saw me go around it and she missed it. I called behind to say, you need to watch out, there's a little post there, and she tapped it. Masha says it was a stone. My wheel touched the stone, and I didn't catch the balance, and I fell. Because she's so petite, she just literally slid off the bike onto the, the ground. And so, of course, I turned around, and I'm just like, are you okay, are you okay? She came without uh, words, and you are okay? I said, I'm okay, without telling, oh, what happened? Not. She was calm and she was asking, you're okay? I'm okay. Well, we will go further. I said, you know, we've got that out of the way now. Now we can go on to the fun stuff. The first bike ride around Stanley Park, I was a little bit nervous because I'm going like, that's a good 10 kilometers around the park. When I made my first round, I was very serious and I was looking only on the path and I didn't see what is going around the ocean. I was looking only straight. I was going after Joanne. I was uh, a, bit, a little stressed, yes. I am not uh, such a woman that I can say I am proud of me. I am... No, no, no. I'm not telling such words. And here I was so happy that I said, I'm so happy. I'm proud. I got it. I did it. Yes. By the end of Joanne and Masha's 10 sessions, they were riding up to 20 kilometers. And Masha was biking the Stanley Park seawall with her husband, like a true local cyclist. 
somebody is in front of me and they are tourists. I don't know. They're biking and looking at the ocean and making photos. And I am, I cannot bike in such a speed. And I'm saying, on your right. And I am going further. And he said, you are crazy. <laughs> you are crazy. <laughs> But I was not scared. It doesn't matter what is your age. It doesn't matter. You can do something if you have a very big desire. Give yourself an opportunity. For me, I said, if I didn't like to bike, I will not do it. But I liked it. And it's a very, very important part in my life. Even now I'm thinking with my broken leg, I'm thinking, wow, it was so wonderful. It was so wonderful. I was so happy. It was in Stanley Park. It was uh, my husband bought me an um, electric bike. And we make a circle, a very, very light circle. And the stone was uh, in the wheels and I fall. And the bike, because it's an electric bike, it is very hard. And it fall on my ankle. She sends me this email and says, oh, Joanne, I had a bad accident. I fell off the bike in Stanley Park and I've now got a broken ankle. And I went, oh, no. So when I got home, I immediately, as soon as I had time, I went over there for a visit. And there she is with the poor boot on, the cast, leg extended, can't do any weight bearing. The break was very complicated. I had a very complicated surgery. And now I have one more. But uh, I believe that everything, it will be okay. I will drink champagne, yes. If I, if I will go back to my bike. <laughs> And I believe that it is, uh, it can happen. I will be the happiest person in the world. Now I even cannot imagine that I haven't this program. Because it was very important for me. When I began to bike, my life was different. We were go biking every day. I'm happy that I'm here because here I have another life. Not better, not worse, but another life. And I like this life. Joanne Thember and Masha Permakov met through the Newcomer Bike Mentorship Program in Vancouver, thanks to tapestry producer Theo Van Buzikom. For much of his life, Arjun Sharma was stuck at pleasantries in conversations with his grandfather. Part of that was the difference in language. Arjun never managed to become fluent in Punjabi, but their divide went far beyond that. There were profound lifestyle differences too, to the point that his grandfather dismissed potentially life-saving medical advice from Arjun, who is studying medicine at Western University. Uh, my grandfather was a really kind and loving man who came from the northwestern part of India, from the city of Punjab, um, from a city called Ludhiana in the 1970s. He came with his wife and his three children, uh, one of which was my dad. Uh, my grandfather was, a, I would say, a very complex person. There was a side to him which I felt that I was very close to and that I understood very well. 
And then I think there was another side of my grandfather who I felt a little bit more distant from, a grandfather who really loved India, and I think who really missed living there um, in more of his adult um, and older years. And I felt distant from, from that grandfather. The conversations with my grandfather would be very superficial. A lot of that is rooted around the language. English for him was, um, I think, a third language um, after Punjabi and Hindi. And so our conversations would be very, um, very superficial in the sense of we talk about the weather, what was going on, you know, with school. Um, I talked to him about um, how things were at the temple or what was going on in India. We would have really just an exchange of a few words, and then most of the conversation would turn between him and my dad. And when they would speak Punjabi, it just sounded like my grandfather became a lot more comfortable with expressing himself with maybe some of his deeper um, ideas and thoughts. And so my relationship with my grandfather really, uh, I think, never dug beneath the surface. You know, my grandfather... I think always drew this energy from from God. And I think that covered up a lot of sort of maybe my grandfather's internal struggle. In his later years, the visits with my grandfather became fewer and further between. Part of that was as the pandemic kind of started and we distanced ourselves from my grandfather as a way to sort of protect him. Another part of that was when I was at school and in Montreal, their just visits became really hard to do. And so I think I I saw my grandfather in small moments, spaced out, really far from each other. And I would just tell myself, each time I saw my grandfather, like there would be this strength and spirit that he would have. However, beneath that, I, I did see my grandfather, especially after my grandmother passed away. I really think I saw sort of life kind of wear on him. You know, my grandfather was living alone. I know that he had a few health issues um, that he was working through. I think while my grandfather really believed and had a strong sense of faith and a belief that God would help him with his health issues, I had this really strong belief in medicine. As much as I love, you know, really good, oily Indian food, I did recognize that it may not have been like the best thing to have all the time. Um, Also very like sweet drinks. You know, you'd have tea and then you get to the bottom of the teacup and there'd just be this small amount of sugar and so I think my grandfather and I you know had a bit of a impasse when it came to sort of like managing his diabetes um, through you know his diet and then we also had misunderstandings around like medications I think there was this idea that the reason for like taking medication is not necessarily to help you there when you're sick but it's to sort of prevent you from becoming sick this idea of prevention, I think, was really hard for him to to wrap his head around. And it was a bit of a sticking point for me, especially because that's what I sort of like would counsel my patients with. So him and I definitely didn't see eye to eye when it came to sort of managing his health. And I know my grandmother, who had passed away a few years earlier, too, had sort of thought about her health in the same way, and I really didn't want that to happen to my grandfather. And so him and I, you know, it was one of those topics, just like politics, where after we got past the initial hellos, weather, how things were going, I just, we just could never really have that conversation without one of us getting a bit prickly about it. 
It was in the middle of the night, actually, because this was the fall of 2020 and there were visitor restrictions um, in hospitals at that time. Um, only a few people were allowed into a hospital room, even near their end of life. It was my mom and my dad, uh, my dad's brother and my dad's sister. And I got this call from my mother that my grandfather passed away. I did have the chance to, because I was working at Toronto General at the time, um, to visit my grandfather in a bit of a clandestine way because I was working on the floor. And unfortunately, he wasn't uh, responsive at that time when I saw him. And it was hard, it was hard to see my grandfather that way um, because I just had this completely different vision of this person for like what is, I don't even know, 80 years that you know someone, right? You see them in their house, you see them behind the counter, you see them making tea, and you see them sort of in regular clothes, like his blazer and his notepad um, and his walking stick. And that's really the kind of picture that you have of that person for like your entire life um, until you see them in what can be such like a cold and sterile space as like a hospital room. And so I spent just a really short time with him um, as to not cloud that kind of memory of my grandfather in like his kitchen or in our living room um, because that was the grandfather that I wanted to kind of keep in my memory forever. My grandfather's wish for his ashes were to be spread in the Ganges in a city called Haridwar, which is in the northwestern part of India. I remember in so many of the times where I would come to visit my grandfather, he would just talk about going back to Haridwar. Like it was his just like mission to his life mission to return to India and to do a pilgrimage um, to this place. And I think as his as his health sort of deteriorated, it, it became a realization that it was something that he would not be able to do, probably to, in the way that he wanted to do it. And so his wish at the end of the day was for his ashes to be spread in the Ganges, which flows through sort of the middle of the city. And so that is what we did. So when we arrived there with the ashes, I think like most places in India, it was quite chaotic. Um, there are a lot of things that are happening in India at any point in time. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of smells, there are a lot of animals. Life just kind of hits you full force. There is a specific spot in the city of Haridwar where a lot of ceremonies are performed. Um, I believe it's called Harkipori. And so um, when we arrive there, it's just thronging with people. There are little sort of spots along the banks of the river where little wooden stools that are set up there may be only a few inches from the ground it's just so that you're not sitting within the kind of a puddle of water it was my myself my dad and my dad's brother who were performing the ceremony for my grandfather in front of us and behind us are people performing ceremonies for for different reasons it really was a beautiful celebration of life um, while we were there performing the last rites for my grandfather, I remember behind us, there was a small child who I believe was having a ceremony for maybe one of their earlier birthdays. And so it was this moment that kind of made me think that at any point in time, there's someone who's coming into this world as there is someone who is leaving it. 
So as my grandfather is leaving this world, there's this kid behind us who is kind of coming into it. And you can say like taking his place. And it was this lovely idea of like the cycle of life that I was thinking about during this ceremony. It was not sad in any way. I thought I would be really sad to um, let my grandfather's ashes go into the river. But with all of this that was happening around us and all the noises and the smells and the people and the water, there's like motion both in life and in death. When it came to the point to put my grandfather's ashes into the river, I felt like we were giving him a new life. The life that he, I think, in some kind of way wanted. And so it was very kind of peaceful, I would say, experience. Arjun Sharma is a medical resident at Western University in London, Ontario. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. You'll find us online at cbc.ca, also on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. Girish Daswani has spent years thinking about what it means to belong, the thin line in life that determines whether you are one of us or one of them. That line can have huge implications. Are you respected? Do people view you with suspicion? And what places in the world will have you feeling welcome? Girish Daswani is an anthropologist at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. He's originally from Singapore, where he never fully understood where those invisible lines were. All of this has driven his life's work. Girish Daswani is my guest. Hello to you. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for making time for us. There are a lot of different ways we can frame this idea of belonging. And you've said there's an almost existential quality to it. Tell me what you mean. Well, I think... Every human being um, has a need to feel like they belong somewhere, whether it's in a place or it's in a community or it's with people that they somehow identify with and who make them feel comfortable, secure. It's existential because it comes from, I think, a need, a human need to fit in, to be a part of something bigger or larger than just the individual or themselves. So belonging is existential. It is something that we collectively share as an experience or as a desire. So it's very counterintuitive to come across an aspect of your work that says, hold up a second, there are also benefits to not belonging, because you don't hear that very often. What do you see as some of the benefits of feeling like a bit of an outsider, whatever the realm might be? What I was trying to say with the idea of not belonging being important was that at the same time, while it's, there is this existential desire to belong, there are lots of people in the world who are made to feel excluded and not belong. And they don't feel like they can participate or be a part of many communities, including communities that are close to them or in which they grow up. As hard as they work, they always feel within them 
that they don't quite fit in. And there are lots of people who share that experience as well. And I think what I was trying to say is that that idea of not belonging is something that is equally important to focus on when we think about belonging. Because I think there are two sides of each coin. Belonging is positive. It can also be very negative. And not the belonging can be obviously negative in a sense that it can have counterproductive effects on the human being, but it can also be productive if we think of it differently in what it gives you. So that's what I'm interested in because I've almost never heard that set of arguments. What can a feeling of not belonging give you? I can talk about myself and also how I see it playing out in life right now in, in the world of today is that the idea of not belonging for me or the feeling of not the belonging has given me a, a different perspective on life, on how people relate to each other. So when you feel like you don't belong to a nation, you don't feel you belong to a community, a family, to any place that you want to identify with, you also start to understand what it feels like to be an outsider, to be excluded, to be always on the margins. And that feeling of marginalization, exclusion, gives you a perspective on life that allows you to hopefully then use it as a way to understand other people who might not share the same experiences as you, who might be different from you, but who also have a similar experience of being marginalized, of being outside a certain frame or a certain group. And I think that can lead to an understanding or empathy, to have empathy for others. But even having empathy for others may not be enough. It's also, it allows you to do things with that. Like having empathy is one thing, but what do you do with it? So I think it can be productive. For me, it allowed me to not just sympathize or empathize, but to try to understand the situations and the conditions of many other people who I saw as also in situations of being outside the community and feeling like they don't actually belong. Anything else that a, a sense of not belonging might offer? A sense of solidarity and community. So I like to use the idea of liminality. And it's an, an idea that comes out of... That's such a tapestry word. It is. I mean, you know, like I, you don't walk around saying, hey, you know, let's all belong to a group through liminality. But <laughs> it's a word that we as anthropologists tend to use a lot. We should define it first, right? Because sure. I'm not sure I'm using it properly it, when I throw it around. It's used as a way to speak about an in-between position, kind of an American anthropologist called Victor Turner. He used it to speak about, drawing on many other concepts, to speak about an in-between stage in a ritual rite of passage. When, let's say, a boy becomes a man or a girl becomes, say, a woman or a, a person who's not yet a part of a, a group then goes through a ritual to then become a part of a group, even going through the education systems is a rite of passage to belong to a community, for so example. So it's that doorway? It's Exactly. That... And that in-between means you're not quite a man, you're not quite a woman, you're not quite a citizen, or you're not quite... But then you're in that space where you don't quite belong to any one group, but you're figuring things out. Uh, and that sense of liminality, he used it to talk about how people who've experienced that can also form groups around that feeling. So they can create a communities around the feeling of being outside, of being liminal, of not quite belonging. And I like to think of it as a positive thing, because if we start thinking about how we can come together through different ways of experiencing not belonging, it means that we don't just have to identify with people who look like us or who feel like us or who think like us. Because sometimes when you think about, oh, you know, I don't feel like I belong, so I can just identify with people who had the same experience as me. Well, that's also very limiting hmm. uh, because it just means that you gravitate towards people who think and feel like you or look like you or talk like you or think like you. 
But the whole point is, actually, it should be more encompassing. It should be, well, there are lots of people who experience different kinds of exclusion. And that's where I want to start in thinking about how we can come together to bring a sense of or make a sense of a community around that sense of not the belonging and maybe even create the solidarity between groups. You're listening to Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. One powerful idea behind Girish Daswani's work is the state of being liminal, feeling as though you're neither here nor there. Here's Girish talking about the liminal at a TEDx talk in Toronto. Victor Turner, an American anthropologist, came up with this idea about liminality. For him, in the beginning, liminality was a middle stage of a rite of passage, a ritual position in which the person going through the rite of passage was stripped of all social status before they could re-emerge into society transformed. Later on in his writing, this is the 1960s, he took the idea of liminality to describe the continuous sense of not belonging that many people feel to speak about how people who experience this feeling of not belonging or being liminal, being neither here nor there, could come together to form a community or a communitas. In his words, liminality was a realm of pure possibility whence novel configurations of ideas and relations may arise. Now, there are limits to Turner's analysis, but what I want to emphasize here for us now is that we can also make this sense of liminality or the feeling of not quite belonging and turn it into something positive, productive, to create a community around which we can respond. My message for you here uh, today is a simple one. Make liminality a way of life. If you remember, I asked you a question at the, at the beginning, whether you'd ever felt like you did not truly belong at any point in your life. Almost all of you raised your hands. Now, take that feeling, keep it within you, nurture it, let it grow, expand it, multiply it to be able to incorporate and include others who are not like you. A moment from Girish Daswani's TEDx talk in Toronto. Now back to our interview. You mentioned something really interesting a minute ago that both of these opposite ends, feeling of belonging, feeling of not belonging, can have a positive and a negative side. What would you see as a not-so-great element of the feeling of belonging? Because that's something we're, we're so conditioned to see as, if I feel that I belong in, in whatever realm, you know, I've made it. What worries you about a feeling of belonging? Well, you just have to look around the world today, and there's a lot of negative connotations to what I call too much belonging. I think too much belonging can lead to very exclusionary forms of discrimination and marginalization and oppression on other people just in order to um, secure or to maintain their privileged sense of belonging. So for example, any kind of nationalism that gets taken to a level where other people who live amongst you are excluded in violent ways or in ways that make them feel like they cannot even speak up or be a part of 
the nation is too much belonging. You think about all kinds of like white nationalism, white the supremacy, Hindu nationalism in India, any kind of nationalism which says that a certain kind of person is the one that truly belongs here and everyone else, unless they are able to prove that they can recreate the values of this group, or even not the values, but even, you know, the all kinds of a criteria, if you don't meet the criteria, then instantly it's okay to treat them badly. It's okay to exclude them from any conversation. You spent part of your childhood in Singapore mm-hmm. and, you know, talking about a liminal place to occupy, there were spaces and places and moments where you very much felt that you belonged and there were also places and moments where you felt that you did not belong at all. Tell me about that sense of, of the feeling of belonging shifting for you during your Singapore years. So I grew up in Singapore and I lived there till I was 24. So I did my all my schooling there until the undergraduate uh, level. And, you know, Singapore is a place that most people don't know very much about. I must say that I grew up in a pretty comfortable situation, even though my father left when I was about eight or nine years old. And so I had a single parent, a mother who was working a lot and who had to take care of me and run a business, a childcare center at the same time. So I had a lot of time to myself to think about things and ask the questions about what it means to be not only an only child, but what it means to, to belong to a place and to a family and to a community. The existential questions already began at a young age. But in Singapore, what has happened is people are categorized according to race. And that is an after effect or a consequence of a colonialism. Race became a way to, to classify people so that the, the British could more easily not just organize them, but also manage the population. And so through this form of governance, lots of different people got categorized under one name. So I'm Indian in Singapore, even though my community belonged to this diasporic ethnic group that is called Sindhi, and we exist in Pakistan. And there's also a diaspora that exists all over the world. So lots of different people who look differently, speak different languages, get called Indian. Then you have different people from the Chinese diaspora or from China who speak different languages too, who get called the Chinese. And then you have the Malay group. And even Malay gets used in a way to actually encompass a lot of different people who seemingly can be. So this racial qualification was based on a very governmental way of like trying to manage and control people and also box them into separate them into groups. Growing up in Singapore, race was a big part of how one either identifies oneself and how one comes to see other people through a racial marker and identification. It was fine when I was going to school. I didn't really think too much about it because when you're younger, you don't necessarily think about these things until they become made apparent to you that somehow the color of your skin or the race that you are given by the nation becomes something of a negative connotation. I realized over the years as I grew older, yes, um, for example, I remember being in the army. So in Singapore, you have to serve two and a half years national service. Now it's two years. And I was in the army and my army mates, my peers, would never call me by my name. So they would would never call me Girish. You would only use a name that they use in Singapore to refer to South Indian indentured laborers that were brought in to work in Singapore who were actually in the prisons. And they were only brought out to work on the clearing of land and creating plantations and so on. So they used that name 
to deny me my individuality, my agency, and as a, as a way of saying that, you know, we can use this name and call you this without there being any repercussions. And I had to live with them for uh, a good one and a half years of those two and a half years every single day. You know, we sleep in the same room. We work together. So that was one way of being discriminated. And every group has a stereotype about all the other groups. So I'm not saying that only one group casts um, stereotypes about one group, but every group has a stereotype about every other group. But who has the power to use their stereotypes to actually feel, make someone feel small and excluded? That usually tends to be the dominant group or the group with the, with the power. Now, these are stereotypes that if you live in Singapore long enough, you would hear. Not only about the Indian community, but about their other stereotypes about the Malay community and as well about the Chinese community. But these stereotypes, um, if you look back in the past, they actually have colonial roots as well. I, I, I was going to touch on that because life then took you to Britain, Ghana, Canada. Um, did that sense of belonging or not belonging shift a lot as you moved uh, as you moved to to different nations? Yeah, I mean, I started to understand what it meant to belong to a place in a different way, depending where I lived. And because if you're already from a minority, if you already feel like you don't quite belong to the majority, you tend to have a survival instinct. And the instinct is you have to fit in. You have to find ways to belong. You have to find ways for, pe for people to like you so that they don't treat you badly. And a lot of the times that means you deny aspects of yourself just so that you can fit in. And obviously I did that. I mean, not only was I a child of a single parent, so which means that I had to find ways and means to fit in to groups that didn't quite know where I came from or who I was or how I would fit in. Living in, in London was great. It's still very mixed in terms of its diversity and the migrant ethnic groups that who have come from the former colonies and who live there. So in a way, I was so privileged. I was doing my master's and my PhD there, and I had a sense of what it means to live not, in, and I must say living in London is not, it doesn't mean you've lived in the UK, you've lived, you've lived in London. And then in Ghana, the tables were turned because I was a part of a minority group that was seen to be somehow more privileged. In Ghana, they call non-Ghanians obroni, which would refer to a white man, a white person. Even Ghanaians who've lived outside of Ghana, who lived in the UK or in North America long enough in Europe, they come back and they get called that too. So it's not always about the color of your skin, but it, it is about a sense of being an outsider, being a privileged to live in Ghana. And, you know, so I had a different sense. My family live in Ghana too, my father's family. And they are of a certain social class where the problems of the of the ordinary Ghanaian don't affect them as much. So I had a sense of what that means, to belong to a social class, to have a privilege, even though my own upbringing was not that of an upper-class person who could live a certain a lifestyle. I, I could learn what that meant from living with my family while I was doing my research. And then I came to Canada, which is a very different experience of you know what it means to belong to a place because of, I believe, settler colonialism. It's a very different sense of how you relate to the land. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in, whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, 
on CBC Radio 1 or online at cbc.ca slash tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is Girish Daswani, who presented a TEDx talk called The Benefits of Not Belonging. I wanted to pick up on something you said a a minute ago about being in the position of having to, your word wasn't repress parts of yourself, but, you know, to shape parts of yourself in order to be liked. Mm -hmm. And, And how do you, how have you gone about reclaiming the parts of yourself that are closer to what you would consider a true self, yeah. the parts that weren't allowed full expression when you were, you know, doing your best to, to have a feeling of belonging? How do you reclaim essential parts of the self that have not been allowed to be expressed for very long? It's a work in progress. So I'm still working on it. I mean, when I say that, I've written a blog post called The Whiteness of Academia. And in that, I talk about my trajectory and my path to becoming an academic, becoming an anthropologist. When I grew up in Singapore, I went to university. I couldn't do my further education. I couldn't do a master's or a PhD in Singapore and become an academic because it wouldn't be recognized as coming from a prestigious enough place at that time for me to qualify to get a job as an academic in Singapore. So my, my teachers told me, leave, go to the global north, go to the US, the US or the UK and get your PhD somewhere else. So that's what I did. I went to London and I got my PhD there. And in doing so, I was always aspiring to be able to fit in to not just becoming an academic who could reproduce knowledge in a certain way, but also to prove to everyone else that I was worthy of being here. Because I mean, I came from a background where the path to academia was never one that I would have thought for myself. I'm the first person in my family to go to to university. I was expecting just to get a job after my degree and stay in Singapore and live a life that most of my friends live now. But that change at a certain point and then in being allowed or being able to pursue my passions, I had to almost shapeshift and suppress parts of myself to be able to look the part to be legitimately accepted. And that first step was leaving Singapore, living in London. I was very happy living in London, even though I had you know, several part-time jobs and, and so on. It was not easy all the time because I speak English and because that was my first language and because Singapore was colonized by the, by the British. So I grew up with a British music and, um, and TV and radio. It was easier to fit in. I think a lot of people from the colonies perhaps also experience that there's a sense of identification with the former colonial country. And so coming to Canada, North America meant that I had to again prove myself. And I find that I was always trying to fit in, but never quite fitting in. And that was because I could never reproduce the values in the same way because of the intersection of social class where I grew up and being able to reproduce a a certain privilege that a lot of people have when they they get through the academic institutions and uh, machinery. So, for example, I had to learn the hard way that if you only work to please other people to prove yourself, 
you're not going to actually allow for that those parts of you that are powerful, that are creative, that are you to speak through your work, to speak through um, your teaching, to speak through your everyday life. And it also means that I was always also trying very hard to please everyone, to make people like me, to impress my colleagues. And I killed a part of myself in doing that. And people don't necessarily respect you more for that. And I found out the hard way that people only valued me for the jokes that I told, for the fact that I was a nice guy, that I could make people feel comfortable, that I was perhaps even a good performer and a good speaker. But the things that I, I was also proud of and that I valued, which was also my intellect and um, the things that I wanted to share about life, was somehow put aside until I felt I could bring it forward. And I could, and I have more recently started to dig into those parts of myself. People who are themselves excluded are also often capable of pointing at another group mm -hmm. and saying, well, they yeah. don't belong, or, yeah. they're not, or they're worse off, or they're not like us. How do you understand what's going on there? How do you understand that dynamic? If you've known the pain of exclusion yourself, yeah. and the temptation is to just pass it on. It's very sad when people internalize the categories and the values and the stereotypes that others have placed upon them over many years. And it is a product of history, a product of a colonialism. It's a product of post-colonial nationalism. It's a product of someone growing up with a certain notion of who they are through the eyes of another person or another group. Franz Fanon, who is a psychologist activist from a Martinique, mm -hmm. he wrote about this in, in, a, you know, in beautiful, excellent ways where the internalization of these values on the colonized, where they are made to feel like they are less, like they are less valued, like the color of their skin or the, the way their hair is styled or shaped or how their noses or their faces look, how these things are not beautiful or valued or how these things are not to be loved, how certain expectations are placed upon them in which they come to place upon themselves. So when I say this, what I mean is these ways of then seeing oneself and proving oneself to be of value. So it's about aspiring to be that person that you were told is of value. And a lot of these ideas have affected notions of beauty, notions of race and racism, notions of success. So I give you an example. My father, he moved to Australia and he lives in Melbourne. And I remember going to visit him once. And, and you know, my father, even though he's a part of the Sindhi diaspora, he grew up in South India. But he looks, he would like to think he could pass off for someone who is Mediterranean. He once said to me, I can't stand it. Like all these migrants who are coming in from South Asia, from India, they don't know how to behave. They don't know how to um, properly conduct themselves when they're on the train, for example. They talk too loud. They've not learned how to behave. And he was living in Australia. And I don't doubt that a white Australian would agree with him. So I was wondering, where is this narrative coming from? And what I came to realize is that my father had was successful in one thing. He was successful in reproducing whiteness. And when I say whiteness, I don't mean the color of your skin. I mean a set of aspirations and values that one can take on and create social and cultural capital in order to fit in and belong and to be recognized and for your voice to be heard. He 
was very well liked with the people he worked with and the people that he moved around with. And he's a very nice person, I believe. And so what I came away thinking was lots of people who've also made that move to migrate somewhere else, who've lived somewhere long enough. At some point, and I'm not the first to say this, they close the door on the, the people who are coming in. And Were you able to challenge your dad in the moment or did you course, just back which off? Is, which is why I say sometimes, I know when I express my thoughts and views, um, people don't always like it, right? Especially if it's people who feel that you should be respecting them and not the challenging them. I said, have you thought about where this idea comes from? I mean, is it from the newspapers that you're reading? And at that time, I was still younger. So maybe I wouldn't have had the same conversation with him now, but I would have been more upfront with him. But I did tell him that um, those ideas would come across as being racist, even though you know these people come from the continent that your family come from, that you come from. And they would also be, it's, it's also a way of excluding people. But we never got into a big argument or fight about this. I have had other conversations with members of my family who subscribe to nationalist rhetoric that is exclusionary of certain minority groups. And so I find that a lot of groups, a lot of racialized minority groups, migrant groups have lived in a place long enough and who've gained access to whiteness or to privilege um, or to a certain uh, social or cultural capital, they start to see themselves as being the gatekeepers of how to behave, what is right, what is wrong. And a lot of those values are values that have come down from a certain understanding of what nationalism is or what the nation state is or what the dominant group or the majority group claims to be of value. And like I said, I mean, there's too much belonging. It can also be internalized by non-white people, by racialized people, by minority groups who want to fit in and want to belong and claim that they belong here. And making that claim that I belong here, I'm from here now, you, on the other hand, are not from here. And that happens everywhere. Girish Daswani, it's really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Girish Daswani is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by Samir Chabra and Arman Bali. Technical production by Laura Antonelli and Austin Pomeroy. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.